0: My name's As. I'm a marijuana addict. And when I say that, that doesn't mean that marijuana is what brought me to my knees or got me into recovery. But I identify myself as a marijuana addict out of respect for this fellowship. I belong to another fellowship, and when I go to them, I conform. Because I want to fit in today. I don't want to stand apart from it. But I am a marijuana addict. Now, what I have here is not notes. It's something I want to read at the end of the meeting. And I had my sponsor write my speech for me, so. <laughs> it's right here. It says
1: <laughs> what it was like, what happened,
0: what it's like now. All right. Okay, I've been in, uh, in recovery for a while, long enough to absolutely tell you that I have never had an original thought. The last original thought that I thought I had evaporated about a year ago. I read it in this other sober periodical called The Grapevine.
1: <laughs> that, was my,
0: that was the last thing I was holding on to that I'd never heard in a meeting, never heard shared. And I re- That's because I've been reading The Grapevine for almost 20 years and I read that in there. So I can absolutely say I have not had an original thought in these rooms. And I'm not going to have one tonight. So you'll not hear anything new if you've been around here for a while, especially uh, if you're from my home group, the Wednesday night book study of Costa Mesa. You're just going to hear a longer version of what you hear every week. So, <laughs> but uh, anyway, I uh, I do go to another fellowship, but I only have one program, and my. My perception and my belief has come to a point where wherever I I go, whatever fellowship it is is that I am in, I still have that one program. And that is what the uh, singleness of purpose has, singleness of substance and purpose, as they explained it, has brought me to. Singleness of purpose does not mean the same thing as singleness of substance. Because we are marijuana addicts and we are Marijuana Anonymous does, does not imply that we can do anything else. And I, I'm speaking for myself. I am as diversified an addict as you will probably come across in these rooms. I sniffed my first glue bag at 1960 and I smoked a joint with it and that was my first high. And it was tester's glue. I don't know if any of you are from back east. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, used to go to Morris's toy store, and he sold these little model aircrafts, and they were like only twice the size of the tube of glue, and they cost 49 cents, and the tube of glue cost 10 cents, and we'd go in there one at a time, we'd buy a model and 10 tubes of glue. model <laughs> And Morris would look at us and scratch his head, he's a businessman. he would just give it to him. and a number three bag. It was number three paper bag was the size bags we used) and, uh, and I did that, believe it or not, I did that for four years and I can still talk. You know? Yeah. I heard that sniffing glue is like sniffing gasoline or sniffing paint, but uh, it was also the first hallucinogenic for me. We sniffed to the point where we actually saw things melting. You know, and then later on in the 60s, we really did see things <laughs> melting when, when uh, Purple Osleys came around and we got into all that kind of stuff. So... I started out sniffing glue and smoking pot and drinking beer in the back of the schoolyard. And that was uh, when I first felt like I fit in. Somewhere along the line, I don't know when exactly it happened, I was like one of these, uh, what they call the latchkey kids. Both my parents worked two jobs. They were never home. So we pretty much ran in the streets till 11 o'clock every night if we wanted to. Nobody to supervise us. And me and my younger brother... But at some point, somewhere along the line, I said, I probably said about some circumstances that got my feelings hurt. And from then on, it was me against all of you. Me against the world. And I was just going to take whatever I wanted to take. And back in New York, that's the way it was. And the more you were that way, the more they said they respected you. But we didn't know the difference between respect and fear. And to us it didn't matter because the outcome was the same people gave you their money they got out of your way you know they bought your things they wanted to be your friend and and uh, my younger brother that died a long time ago was probably one of the most badass people i ever knew and uh and that's why he's dead i think of him almost every day still and it's been 1970 since we laid him away and he died trying to escape out of Rikers Island. And uh, I think of him still every day. And I wonder why I'm still alive, why I have the gift of sobriety in my life. And he's not, and so many others are not. They haven't been graced at. That. And that's exactly what it was when I came into these rooms. I was graced with sobriety. The people that were here when I got here told me I didn't do anything to earn it. It was a gift. My part of it was, what was I going to do with it? And um, the maintenance part of it, the footwork part of it was up to me. But it was a gift. And I didn't come in here and surrender. I was defeated. And I say there's a clear difference between surrender and defeat. And uh, some of us call it low bottom. You know, the difference between low bottom and high bottom. My surrender didn't come until later on in recovery, into the third step. But I was defeated enough where I had had enough. And I don't want to go into a long drug but I was on heroin for eight years. I was on the first methadone program that Nelson Rockefeller, who was the governor at the time, put together back then for almost four years. And I was a, I was a hard junkie, and we did anything and everything that we had to do to get our money. And uh, I smoked weed all along. Right through the 60s, right through the 70s. And I went from one drug to another to another. And uh, every time I, I did a drug and switched from one to another, and I stayed on the downers. I was not, I liked the stuff that kept me on the ground, not the shit that put me on the ceiling, you know. I wanted, I wanted to be on the ground. I tried that crystal meth or that speed when it first came out. <laughs> And it was okay as long as I had a good bag of douche, you know, to bring me down. When enough is enough of that. You know, I just can't handle all of that kind of awareness and awakeness. And what am I going to am I, got, hey, you know, I just couldn't do that. I was here for the nod, you know. So uh, I smoked weed all along. And, and when we talk about marijuana as a drug, I never looked at it that way. It was always my solution to those hard drugs. Whenever I was going over the edge with whatever I was into at the time, my attitude was, and a a few other people with me, we'll just smoke pot and mellow out. We'll just smoke pot. We'll be okay. Let's just smoke pot for a while, and then we'll find another drug. So I believe, in hindsight, that I hit my bottom a long, long time ago. I just never knew it because I smoked pot every time I was close to that bottom. So it kept me on that bottom. And if you keep a man down long enough... And consistently enough, he'll never know that he's on the bottom. And I live my life that way. I I thought I was doing okay, and I really wasn't doing okay. I had hit a bottom, and I wasn't even aware of it. So that's pretty pathetic for me. I have a spiritual advisor, and he defines wisdom as knowing one enough is enough. That was the first day I came into these rooms. I was defeated, and I had enough and if you're new here today and if you've had enough you're in the right place and that one attitude and that one concession I believe is the smartest thing I've ever done in my life everything else whatever else I have gained whatever insight I've gotten whatever perspective that I may have now is nothing compared to that first day when I said enough is enough and I can never forget that I need to remember that always and I have my way of remembering that first day. I remember what the doors looked like when I walked into that first meeting in my pajamas. I was in a treatment program. <laughs> I remember a lot of things. I remember uh, doing the, the recovery waltz, you know, what they call the first three steps. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. 18 months I did that waltz, <laughs> you know. I had a sponsor I never called. <laughs> but I did the waltz, you know, and everything. And I was just waiting for my life to turn around. When I, when I had gotten into the care unit, my wife had asked me to leave because uh, I came out to California. We had gotten back together again. I'd been living in Texas and wanted to be a cowboy my whole life and decided that enough with the heroin and all the barbiturates and stuff. I'm just going to be a cowboy and drink whiskey. <laughs> And I did that with my buddy Rocco outside of Houston, Texas for about a little over a year. And I learned how to drink with the cowboys and had like, you know, just wild turkey for breakfast with cereal.
1: Let's let's try this,
0: you know. We got no jobs. It ain't like we got to be nowhere. Let's do this. And then we'll go play these honky-tonks at night for drinks and, and carouse around with women or do whatever we can do. Let's just be cowboys, you know. And we did that for a long time. And it seemed like a lot of fun and uh, started getting in trouble and that's, that's what happens to me when I'm under the influence of whatever it is whether it's weed, whether it's whiskey, whether it's drugs I'll take a simple misdemeanor and turn it into a felony you know, I just have a knack for doing that I cannot keep my mouth shut you know, I just got to be the outspoken one and be outraged that somebody's questioning my actions you know we were cattle rustlers in Houston. I only say that because somebody mentioned it to me earlier in the day. They, they called us cattle rustlers because we used to wear baggy clothes and go into this market and take all kinds of pork chops and ham and steaks and <laughs> stick them in our clothes and pants and, <laughs> and buy a box of macaroni and cheese,
1: <laughs> one quart
0: of milk, and a loaf of
1: bread, you know,
0: which we could get for probably under a buck. And have this blood dripping out from it. You know, all this meat and shit. And walk out the store. And, uh, and we'd feed the the neighborhood Was six units there. They rented for $20 a piece. Nobody was working. Nobody could buy the meat from us anyway. So we'd cook it up and we'd have a barbecue. And somebody would find somebody for a case of beer, a couple of quarts of whiskey. And we'd get drunk and load. And that was our weekends, you know. But we were the cattle rustlers. The New York cattle rustlers. So I had a... Uh, I had this thing in my gut that uh, I was separated from my wife and two kids at the time. And I was still very much in love with her. And I loved my kids. And I used to think about it. And all those times that I told her I I was going to quit and I really didn't want to live this way anymore. And and all the promises I made to her over, this was over a five-year period. I really meant it and I just didn't know how to keep that. I meant it when I said it. And a day or a week later, I'm back to doing the same old... Crazy stuff, and uh, she just up and left me for California. And she had some siblings that moved out here, and they got swept up in the uh, the born again experience. So she fell into a Pentecostal church, which told her you need to be with your husband because God's going to heal him. You bring him out here, boy. Didn't you didn't know what they were asking for? <laughs> sure enough, she calls me up and. I said, these people out here said they can really help you and they want you to come out here. And, and her brother and, and her cousin had been healed and they were supposedly doing okay. I kind of doubted it, but they said they were doing okay. So I hitchhiked from uh, Houston to California at $13 in my pocket and I had uh, more luggage than I can carry. I had never hitchhiked cross-country before, but if you ever do it, travel light, you know, <laughs> I had a a toolbox, I had a guitar, I had a duffel bag, I had an overnight bag. I had more than, I needed four arms to carry the stuff. So wherever I got picked up and dropped off, there I was. You know, I I just couldn't carry everything. And I said, well, I'm just going to sit here, like, you know, and pout until somebody picks me up. and, (laughs) And Interstate 10 wasn't quite completed across the country at the time. And somewhere near the Pecos River, I ran out of highway And there was not a whole lot of cars coming by, you know, and there was a little convenience store and I bought some balloons and I started blowing up balloons to get attention of cars. Anybody, hey, you know, stop going that way. (laughs) I got picked up by this Indian that just got out of a surgery for some kind of heart heart surgery or whatever, and he was drunk, and he's, he said, I'm not supposed to drink, and I'm sure not supposed to drive, but I'm going 400 miles west, if you want to drive, I can drink, and I
1: said, all right, so, <laughs> so,
0: so, so I, I took off with this guy, and, and he was having some visions in the car, because he, he would just come out of a dead sleep, like, hooping, and like, like a war cry or something, and startle the shit out of me, he'd be quiet for about an hour, and just whooping the... And then he, uh, he said he'd put me up if I wanted. I said, no, I, I'm trying to get to California before my daughter's birthday. She was going to turn, uh, I think, five, five or six at the time. And I wanted to get there for her birthday. That was my goal. So I said, no, thanks a lot. And I, he let me off in this town. And I got picked up by these two brothers. And it didn't dawn on me until much later, the guy's name was Moses. And his brother's name was Aaron. And they took me across the dry part of, deck of Texas, across the panhandle. And in hindsight, I'm thinking, this is like, you know, this is like biblical. You know, this is like Moses and Aaron are taking me across the desert to reunite me with my family. Maybe this thing really is, you know, this, this thing that they're talking about out there, this born again. Maybe this is the real thing. Here's Moses and Aaron. I know it's not the real Moses and Aaron, but just that was their names. You know, probably... Most of the people born in the South are named after biblical characters, anyway. But I happened to cross Moses and Aaron, and, and, the, and I smelled so bad after being on the road for four days already. I hadn't been out of my boots. I took my boots off, and they rolled the windows down, and they drove me to the uh, Pecos River and jumped in for a bath. I guess. You know? They said you need to wash off, you know. I said okay. So uh, they got me across Texas, and they got me to the border of New Mexico, and then I got. Picked up by uh, Frank Zappa's nephew. I don't know his name. He said he was Frank Zappa's nephew. And, uh, and they had these peyote buttons. They had these peyote buttons. And I had never done peyote. I've heard of it. I, I'd read, read some of Don Juan's stories in those days. And i heard of that. And I said, yeah, I'm headed for a a spiritual experience and all that maybe the CMs you know, whatever yeah give me one you know so so I eat these buttons and about 20 30 minutes we are driving. Well, I don't feel nothing maybe you should give me another one so they give me another one and I remember getting to the bar that we were going to and I don't remember anything else the next thing I remember they were dropping me off right on the outskirts of town it was a warm hot summer night the stars were all out like the milky way and it was probably 1 or 2 in the morning. And they dropped me off and said, see you later, good luck. They said, okay. And I didn't remember where I had been. But I was on this peyote. And the first car that comes along is, is the Las Cruces City Police. And, you know, and I still had the balloons.
1: <laughs>
0: trying to get a ride. So they picked me up, take my balloons, throw all my shit in the car, and take me to the city jail. So they locked me up take my boots off they roll the windows (laughs) you know they they throw your shoes and shoelaces and belt and shit out here oh man throw those socks away you know and uh, I'm flying on this peyote I've never had I have never had a trip like this not even on LSD I'm flying on this peyote and I'm sitting in this cell and all of a sudden there's three beings in there there's three entities in there and I start talking to them and I'm hearing, I'm hearing responses. Now, I have a conversation with these, and I'm saying, how did, how did you get in here? How did you get in here? And then I hear feet, and it's a cop coming down the hall. Just, I just don't say nothing, you know, and he's looking around, and he goes away, and I say, how did you get in here?
1: How did you get
0: in here? Is there a way out?
1: Can you, show me? <laughs> you know?
0: Was over. and this goes on all night so they figure they figure something's going on I'm looking for the way out now this is, this is what happened I looked in the toilet and I saw another being
1: I said how did you get in here
0: so I've been talking to my reflections in the two faucet handles in the stall, and I look in the toilet and there's another reflection I'm talking to that one now I didn't know this till the till the next day or the next week but I I was talking to these people and they were going to help me get out.
1: <laughs> so anyway
0: the, the cops the next morning they they pulled me upstairs and they said we just we got nothing on you but we're going to let you go and they had all my stuff dumped out on the floor. They knew I was on something and they thought they'd get me for some kind of possession but I didn't have anything. But they had ripped my guitar in half and Dump my duffel bag, dump my everything. So here I'm packing everything. I'm in the middle of Las Cruces, hot summer day, and I got to walk to the to the freeway. And I got more than I can carry. And stupid me, I, I should have just tossed most of the stuff. But I'm taking two trips across every traffic light, <laughs> running back, grab the other stuff, run across the street. Slowly I work myself to the freeway, and I still had the balloons. Some two of the balloons. <laughs> And this couple, this couple picks me up that that had just enough room to stick me in and all my stuff on top of me in the back of this like little pino, and they drove
1: they drove me to Arizona,
0: and uh, and from Arizona the thirteen dollars was enough to get a bus ticket to get to Santa Ana, so I got the rest of the way, and I got there and uh, I couldn't believe the whole experience of that hitchhiking thing, and, and uh, that was like a spiritual awakening in itself. And I get to this church, you know, my wife is there and and she looks at me and she says, go take a bath, you know. So I get cleaned up and I don't know if it was that night or the next night I go to church and sure enough they lay hands on me. They're praying in tongues and all that and there's nothing wrong with that kind of stuff. You know, there really is nothing wrong. And I'm really trying to get with it. I'm trying to get with it. But my, my brain is like, you know, the committee's going off. Oh, just just fake it. They'll leave you alone if you just fake it. i like, no, I want this to work and it's not working. Maybe I'm trying too hard or whatever and the committee won't shut up. And then the committee formed a subcommittee and it got worse. And I started speaking in Turkish. And they say, are you speaking in tongues? And they... So that got their attention, they let me go, they said, you've been blessed, you know, you've been blessed, that's the sign of the Holy Spirit. So uh, I knew I wasn't speaking, at times I was just speaking in a language nobody understood. (laughs) So uh, I tried that church thing for about three or four years, and it worked as long as I was in the church. Every time I walked out the doors, it was the same old me, it was the same old me. And there's nothing wrong with the churches, there's nothing wrong with their doctrines or their beliefs, I just couldn't live up to them. Some of those people could. I couldn't. You know, so uh, when I hit my bottom, I had tried the religious conversions, and I had tried the psychological things with the psychologists and the marriage counselors, and I wasn't 100% honest with them. I was as honest as I could be, but it hadn't worked. So when I had hit my bottom, it was pretty much a defeat, and it was more of a, an emotional defeat than a physical defeat. I just couldn't live this way anymore. I knew I was going to have to change something in my life, that I just could not live this double life, being the absent father and the absent husband and just paying the bills. That doesn't, that doesn't work. But I thought I was doing good because I hadn't stuck a needle in my arm in uh, about seven years at the time. You know, I drank a lot still. I was drinking a lot, and uh, I decided to not go to the bars and not drink whiskey. And I made that decision for myself that I was just going to smoke pot and drink beer, and I'll do that for the rest of my life, and I'll be OK. If I can do that for the rest of my life, I will be OK. And I did that for about four years. I basically just drank beer and smoked pot. I didn't have no horrendous, crazy, you know, drug, big, big, drug-crazy kind of story. It was just that, that petty, you know, and that pathetic. That I went back to what I was doing when I was 12 years old. And I said, if I can do that for the rest of my life, I can do this. I can be a 12 year old for the rest of my life. And I have three kids now. So when I hit my bottom, it was not a good day when I walked in here. And uh, I was defeated. But they told me that uh, the old timers told me that you've been graced by God, whether you feel like it or not. This is a gift, you've been graced by it, and you should be grateful. I felt anything but grateful. But I did that, that one, two, three waltz for quite a while. And uh, when I got to step three, I started thinking about my will and my life. What does that mean? And I got into this little book study that used another book that I don't want to really mention here. It's secret information. But,
1: uh, <laughs> but they, they said
0: your will and your life is your thoughts and your actions. And that's what you're to turn over to God. Now, that doesn't mean that every thought and action is going to be godly. And that's just, I'm just turning that over to God. And I'm to ask God to direct my thinking. And if I could just do that and not use one day at a time and not drink one day at a time, that everything will probably work out okay. You know, just keep coming back. And that's what I did. And uh, I don't know why, and I don't know why most people still do. We just kind of come to a brick wall at the fourth step. And make it out to be like, oh, it's oh, this is a terrible thing, and it's the infamous fourth step. You know, watch out for that. You know, that's put the skids on on recovery. And uh, I found out there's nothing infamous about that fourth step, and there's nothing infamous about me. It was just my my way of rationalizing not doing the work because it actually required writing. It actually required writing and praying and thinking about it. But uh, I got to a point after 18 months that uh, my wife wanted that divorce. She saw no apparent change in me, even though I wasn't drinking and using, and rightly so, you know, because I hadn't worked the steps. I have, hadn't had a spiritual experience or a change in, in my personality sufficient enough to be evident in her eyes. So uh, I got a sponsor. I started getting real with the program and he took me to, through the fourth and fifth steps and uh, he was a Nazi sponsor probably just what I needed an uh, uh, armed robbery guy holdup guy that got shot in the chest one day had a bad day some guy had a bigger gun than he did not blew him away in the chest and he lived through it but he got sober behind it and uh, I learned a lot from him from Bart I learned an awful lot and he made it simple for me and he said you do the fourth step in regards to your drinking, your drinking and using. He said, Don't worry about your dysfunctional family or all the other crap in your life, not crap, but all the stuff that you can get bogged down with. You just do it in the terms of your drinking and using, and you got the rest of your life to work the process in for the rest of the stuff. He said, Just get by with this for right now. So I did my fourth step in regards to my drinking and using. Who did I hate behind my drinking and using? You know, who did I resent? What institutions? It's the Department of Corrections in New York. You know, certain police officers in the 71st precinct, certain school teachers. And uh, I missed the whole thing. You know, my parents weren't on there. The people that I did have legitimate resentments for weren't on there because I didn't understand the difference between resentments and blame. And even though my parents did some things that I resented, I knew they did the best they could, and I didn't want to blame them. But I couldn't, couldn't identify that resentment because I thought I'd be blaming them and putting them in a bad light. And uh, my sponsor cleared that up for me, and he told me what resentment was. He says it's revisiting a bad feeling. It's not blaming anything. The word resentment means to revisit a bad feeling. Every time you think about it, you feel bad. So there's something wrong with it, and I've got to get past it. And he told me the only way that I can get past resentments is to forgive them. And that made no sense at all, you know. You know, you know my program said the 8th step was a hit list. That's what you do. <laughs> like, you know, these are the people you need out of your life so you can get on with it, you know. it popping up in my head. So, uh, <laughs> I had to pray a lot for that willingness to forgive And it does work. It really does work. I found when I prayed for those people that I had resentments about and saw them as people that were also spiritually lacking or spiritually sick, like it says in the Big Book. And I could see them for the people that they were, not for the actions that they did. I could forgive them for being fallible human beings. That didn't mean I condone the actions that happened, I just forgave them for being fallible human beings. And uh, the truth of it was that in most of those cases, if I wasn't somehow responsible for their actions stepping on their toes, I at least set the stage. So I started seeing my part in it. And I did that process through my marriage, did an inventory on my marriage, and after seven or eight years of sobriety, I made direct amends to my ex-wife. And we have a pretty good understanding today, a pretty good relationship. And I got past that. And I have a a pretty good relationship with my kids today. I got kind of lost in the sixth and seventh steps. I just kind of got lost in there, you know, because they seemed so ultimate. Like, you know, to have God remove all these defects of character. I said, oh, I don't know. So what about all of them? <laughs> How about just the real bad ones? Not all of them. Isn't it progress not perfection? All of them. Oh. And I just kind of got lost because the truth was there were some character defects I didn't want to give up. And you know when I read that in the book the first time, I said, "Not me. I want to be white as snow and pure and all that." And, you know, but when I'd been sober long enough. And portrayed some of those character defects, and saw them in myself, and realized, yeah, I kind of enjoyed I kind of enjoy this still it uh, 's not a good thing to to see myself the dark side of myself and to acknowledge it, but it was absolutely necessary, and uh, I had gotten a new sponsor after that because Black Bart did something terrible and disappeared for a while, and uh, still disappeared, but uh, The sponsor I have today is still my sponsor. And he said, all of my character defects will be removed 20 minutes after I stop breathing. I said, okay, I can live with that. I can live with that. He said, but you still pray to have them all removed. Okay, all right. (laughs) And, uh, you know, over a period of time, I learned that I had to hit a bottom on my on my behaviors the same way I hit a bottom on my substance abuses when I got sick and tired of the behaviors and they weren't right for me anymore they just were not right no more I had to let them go and I willingly let them go at that point but I had to hit a bottom and um, I got into service when I was lost in those six and seven steps and it was a perfect place for me to hide out from recovery you know and the last time I think I stood at a podium like this before you guys, I mentioned this. I was in service. I was in full service. Full flight from the steps. You know, taking the, uh, <laughs> taking the inventory of the meetings and MA as a whole. You know, and that's a big job. That can keep me busy. And it kept me busy for a couple of years. And I didn't, I didn't you know, dislike most of the people in service. And I hadn't met many people that I did dislike in recovery anyway. And, and I talked to my sponsor about that, and he said, "Well, you just haven't been to enough meetings."
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. And it happened, you know. And I had there was one meeting that I went to, and I was about five years sober, and I actually had a fistfight with this guy right outside the double doors over nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that I can remember now but it was important at the time that he, he required an ass you kick know, and I was getting it to him and he uh, probably thought the same way about me and I've seen fights break out in meetings and they happen You know, I don't know about the meetings you go to they don't always happen but they do happen and, uh, and he told me he said you're not going to get along with everybody you meet in these rooms and the sooner you realize that and get by that the better off you'll be and that one was a good lesson for me because I, uh, the guy still kept going to the same meetings. We still kept going to the same meetings after the fight. You know, we're, just, all right, we're going to have a round two, you know. But we never shared about it or attacked each other in the sharing. But we'd sit across the room, you know, doing those daggers and just looking at each other. And, and, uh, and I started praying for him because I knew that had worked in my, in my inventory process. And uh, somewhere the anger just went. I went up to him after a meeting and I apologized. I said, you know, I'm really sorry. And I dropped those words that I was told to drop. The one word was but. You know, whenever I made an amends, I would make an amends and I would say, I'm sorry for this and this and this. But, and that would follow with my rationale. But you really deserved it. Or you did, you know. My sponsor said, no, you don't say the but. And you don't say nothing after that. So you just make the amends and stop right there. And uh, And I did that. I just apologized, I just apologized for swinging on him, and said uh, I had no business doing that, and he apologized also, and we became cold, cool friends after that never, yeah. you know, i don 't know whatever happened to him, but we never fought again, and we never had hard feelings towards each other again. I just kind of let it go it 's a good lesson for me, and uh, you know today i don 't have the right to to harm anybody mentally, emotionally, physically, in any which way because uh, I think I've grown beyond that, but I know that I have, and I believe everybody has a breaking point, and slippery places for me are those breaking points. I have a dear friend of mine that I grew up with that's sober out in the desert two months ago. He emptied two guns in this car, car that pulled up on his lawn because they wanted to hurt his daughter. And he's 19 years sober. He emptied two guns into that van. And luckily, he didn't kill anybody. But we can do things sometimes in the heat of the moment if we get to that breaking point. And uh, sometimes to protect our children for whatever whatever the reason may be. But those places are, I hope I never have to make a decision like that. I hope I never have to be in a, a slippery place like that. At 10 years, I was in a slippery place because I let somebody burn me for 10 grand. And I hurt that man. And I put him in a hospital, and then I had a hide from the police for about a month. And uh, I felt like I sold my spirituality and my program for 10 grand. I felt like I was just outcast. You know How could I do this? How you know, well, it was 10 grand, 10 grand, but that's what I sold my integrity and my spirituality for, for 10 grand. And this old-timer, Jim, is dead now about 10 years told me that uh, sometimes we're chosen to be the left-handed God. And I like that. That got me by. But later on, I was volunteering to be the left hand uh. man. <laughs> hey, that guy deserves something. I'd like to be the one to dispense God's justice on his raggedy ass, you know? <laughs> so, you know, we take something like that and we just twist it around to our own convoluted rationalization of acting out into that crazy old crap in the... Uh, I don't know if I'll ever go out of that, maybe 20 minutes after I stop breathing. But uh, I'm grateful to say that I have not damaged another human being in any way since that since that incident with that guy. In any way. I had loud words with one guy and I made immediate amends with him. And that was up in Fresno on a job I was on. And I don't know if you guys sensed it when I came to your meeting one night. I was just like... Oh, just fuming. That guy needed an ass kicking. So, he needed the left hand to go. Because <laughs> he questioned me.
1: <laughs>
0: Boy, the things that I think are important or, or justify behaviors like that. And I'm grateful I had a meeting to go to when I was in Fresno. And I knew what I had to do and I went back to work the next day and made amends. I don't think I said anything to, to Tony or his crew about it, but, uh, but I was not in a good place. Every time I act out or that old dragon wakes up, I never go to a good place. So, uh, you know, one day at a time and one step at a time. The progress, not perfection, is working in my life. Nowadays, I practice restraint of tongue a lot whenever I'm emotionally charged. I practice restraint of tongue. I have done more damage with my mouth than I ever did with my fists when I look back in all my years and I looked at my eight-step list, I have said some terrible things to some of the people that I love the most. And those things cannot be taken back. And I was working my six and seven steps, and this is how they sank for me. And this is the depth that I had to take them to. That when I say something hateful and hurtful to anybody, I think that in the scientific realm, Sound vibrations never die. You just go beyond the level of audible. But the vibrations never cease, just like ripples in a pond. You drop a pebble in a pond and the ripple will go to the other end of clear lake eventually. It's just so imperceptible we can't see it and we can't know it, but nevertheless it's there. So when I act out on a hateful and hurtful form like that and verbalize something, I believe that that goes on till the end of time. And I don't want to put any more of that shit out there. I put more than my share out there in this life. But I also believe that if I can come from a place of love and say something loving and compassionate and kind, that too will go to the end of time. And that's the healing part of it for me. And that's how I have to look at my character defects and and this weapon up here that comes out of my mouth. That I cannot... I cannot let that cannon loose. I have to practice restraint of tongue. Uh, I've been on both ends of it, and it's not a good place either to to dispense it or to receive it. And uh, so I try to practice kindly things. And if I just can't bring myself to say something nice to you, I'll just shut my mouth and just walk away. You know, and uh, my good friend Joe says, you know, and he said the Dalai Lama used to say, if you can't help somebody, God's sake, don't hurt them. You know, He said, our job out here is to help somebody. So I look at the using and, and the, the path that my life has taken, and I was telling some guys, I've been in Marijuana Anonymous for a generation, at least, and that's pretty close to a lifetime. And I've grown up with a lot of you guys, and I was overwhelmed by the faces I saw this weekend because I have not seen all of you under one roof in quite a long time. And... Uh, I like the theme of this convention, Journey to Serenity. That's exactly what it's been for me. I just want to be okay. Not even happy. most. I just want to be okay. I want to be reasonably comfortable. It's been a journey towards serenity, this whole thing, this whole trip. And I'm not at the, I'm not at the end yet. I'm still on the road. And I don't think that I ever will get to the end. I've stopped looking for the answers, and it doesn't matter anymore. I'm enjoying the journey so much, I don't want it to end. I don't need no more answers. I don't need no more big car or the money or the, uh, the property and the prestige. I don't need that stuff no more. I have something better than that. I have a direction. And the direction is real clear and it's real simple. It was told to me a long time ago, trust God, clean house and help others. Whatever is happening in my life, whatever upsets my apple cart, whatever it is, the direction is always trust God, clean house, and help others. And I had to practice that to a great degree this past year. I have a son, and I don't know if he inherited the disease or he worked at it like I did. And it really doesn't matter. But the fact is that he had it. And I was working up in Fresno. And my other two kids called me up, and they were afraid that this one boy was going to take his life. And he'd he'd been doing that crystal meth. And that's the drug I hate. I hate those uppers. You know, they're psychotic. You know, we narcotics are downers people. We like to be in control and have our feet on the ground. That, that crystal meth stuff is just like out there. You know, it's psychotic. And, uh, and he was psychotic, and he was suicidal. And I felt utterly helpless because I was in Fresno, a few hundred miles away. And I did the only thing that I knew what to do, what the old times told me to do, was pray. Because I believe that there's a power out there greater than myself that took me and helped me. I came here in here pretty broken, and I hit some bottoms in sobriety. And uh, when I went through that divorce, I thought I would never laugh again. I swear to God, I don't think I would ever laugh or be happy again. I thought all the joy had been taken out of my life. Now I was a complete failure, and uh, that is not proven to be the case. And if God could do that for me, God could do that for my son. So I prayed. I prayed that he would live until I got home, that he would not take his life. I prayed that God would put the right people in his path. And I asked my other two kids, don't let him out of your sight. You know, and he's the one that has my grandson. And he's driving around with my grandson. And I don't know what to do. And I'm just praying to God every minute of the day. I hope they're safe. I hope they're safe. God, keep them safe. And I got home, and uh, I brought him back to Fresno with me because he couldn't be by himself, and I took him to the Fresno Fellowship a couple of times, and he was a little more calmed down when you guys seen him. But I took him to another meeting, and they gave him a big book, and everybody in that meeting signed it, and everybody wished him love and success and encouragement. And these are people I'd only known for a couple of months. You know, where do you find people like this? I heard it at the old-timers meeting. You know, that you could bring the thing that you love the most, like your children, and they'll take them, and they'll love them. Where can you go to find something like that? I don't know any other place. So I took my son there, and today I have turned him over to that higher power and to the fellowship at large, because you guys put me back together. You guys have put me back together. You made me pretty much what I am today. I don't know if that's good or bad, but you guys did it. (laughs) And I'm reasonably content, reasonably comfortable today. My life has some direction, you know, which is another word for purpose. My life has some direction today. I trust God, I clean house, and I help others. I sponsor more people today than I have ever in my whole sobriety. I have a sponsor, I have two sponsors, my real sponsor is back in the Merchant Marine, and so I have this other guy, Patrick, that I hang out with and Patrick's 35 years sober and I probably go to three or four meetings a week with him when I'm in town and I talk to him probably three or four times a week during the week no matter where I'm at and this is a man that I met when I met him he was living in his van he was 25 years sober he was one of the angriest people I could meet in the rooms and today he's one of the happiest and he doesn't live in his van and it's not the things that made him happier he has had such a transformation of spirit that uh, everybody that knows him how he used to be are amazed at him somebody told him one day 10 years ago be nice be nice Patrick some woman told him that and he thought about that for a long time and he started being nice how simple is that
1: hey I don't
0: have to hit this guy with a 2x4 you know which he he was taking a 2x4 to his boss he says I'm unemployable start working with people they tell me what to do and i just want to beat him with a two by four so uh that's why he was living in his van but uh he started being nice and this program is so simple that sometimes i'm too smart for it and i just can't see it it is really so simple you know and it all started with that first day the first day the wisest thing that i could do saying enough is enough and i take that now to different areas of my life and my lesson and my goals now are to learn when enough is enough in other areas of my life. I don't need it all anymore. I don't want it all. Too much effort, too much time. And it's all transitory. You know, and I don't, I don't seek those things that, that I thought were so important in early sobriety. The things that I cherish most nowadays are the things that I hold in my heart, not in my hand. And what I hold in my heart mainly is the relationships that I have with people. I am very comfortable around people as a whole the rest of the human race I have stopped fighting everything and everybody I was so nervous when I came up here today I still have that initial fear that knee jerk reaction to getting in front of a large bunch of people but I sit up here and I'm looking at the faces that I have shared compassion and love and kindness with for almost 20 years of my life you know how could I be anything less but grateful and to see all of you here in one place, under one roof. What a blessing. What a blessing. You know, and if I start naming you, you know, I'll go way beyond my time. But you guys have been instrumental in putting me back together. You've given my life a depth of love that I've never had. And it's the kind of love that I think that comes from God. It's not the, the kind of love that I thought was love growing up. But I have a, a, a program for living today and I stay in the maintenance steps 10 and 11 and 12 and the keywords in there continue, improve, and practice. Continue, improve, and practice. Every day continue and improve, and practice. And I stay in the action. You know, we read that one chapter in the other fellowship it says into action. Thank God it doesn't say into thought. Oh. <laughs> into action. Into action. Action is what defines my life. My actions are what I will remember 10 years from now. My actions 10 years ago are what I remember today. I could not tell you what I was thinking three hours ago if I relied on my thoughts. I really couldn't. I can tell you where I was, what I was doing, but I don't remember what I was thinking when I was doing that. So I don't don't go into the thought stuff too much. It's the actions that will define me. And they're very simple actions. The direction is real clear. Trust God, clean house, and help others. And uh, I've got about one more minute. I'd like to read this uh, paper here. It's called Daisy Dorada, if I am pronouncing it right. I read this. Believe it or not, I was sniffing glue and smoking pot. I was 14 years old. I was in the cemetery across the street from Erasmus High School, you know where that's at. And I read this, and I never forgot it. And I thought, wow, what a wonderful thing. And uh, it came back into my life a while back, and and it is a good way to live. Uh, A lot of principles of the programs are in it. Some of you are probably familiar with it, but I can't think of a better ending for tonight and for my life when that time comes. Go placidly amid the noise and the haste, And remember what peace there may be in silence. As far as possible, without surrender, be on good terms with all persons. Speak your truth quietly and clearly. And listen to others, even to the dull and the ignorant. They too have their story. Avoid loud and aggressive persons. They are vexatious to the spirit. If you compare yourself with others, you may become bitter or vain, for always there will be greater and lesser persons than yourself. Enjoy your achievements as well as your plans. Keep interested in your own career, however humble. It is a real possession in the changing fortunes of time. Exercise caution in your business affairs, for the world is full of trickery. But let this not blind you to what virtue there is. Many persons strive for high ideals, and everywhere life is full of heroism. Be yourself. Especially do not feign affection. Neither be cynical about love, for in the face of all aridity and disenchantment, it is as perennial as the grass. And for us grandfathers here, take kindly the counsel of the years, gracefully surrendering the things of youth nor just strength of spirit to shield you and sudden misfortune. But do not distress yourself with dark imaginings. Many fears are born of fatigue and loneliness. Beyond a wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is as folding as it should. Therefore, be at peace with God, whatever you conceive him to be. And whatever your labors and aspirations, in the noisy confusion of life, keep peace in your soul. With all its sham, drudgery, and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. You people have made it so. Be cheerful,
1: strive to be happy, and God bless you.